let me invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, we are working systematically through this book. Uh, And this book is an accounting of the life of Jesus. And so we're getting to know him and looking at his life and ministry and uh, trying to grasp something of its value for us on a daily basis, what it means for our lives both here and in eternity. And uh, as we come to Mark chapter 7 this morning, uh, we come to a part of the uh, story here where it's one of the few accounts in, in Mark's gospel of instruction by Jesus. We've seen one of these so far, and I told you that there are a couple of others, but that they are few um, where it's, it's more than simply recounting for us the historical events in the form of a narrative, but that it actually gives us a time where Jesus is teaching something, where there is a substantial and definite instructional passage. You know, when you turn to other gospel accounts, like let's take Matthew, for example, uh, there is profound amount of teaching in, in all of those stories where we see Jesus teaching on this and teaching on that and, you know, scolding these people and lifting up these people. But he, he is continually instructing. There's a great deal of theological teaching that te- takes place. And that's not so much the case in the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, uh, there's a great deal of theology, but it comes to us in the form of uh, a story about him rather than teaching necessarily that he's given. But this then is one of those times where uh, in the story we're given uh, some instruction by Christ. And so uh, it's very interesting, however, though, Jesus is going to be teaching today about the Word of God. And so I would simply encourage you today as we begin this uh, sermon, as we begin this passage, and as we begin to think together about uh, these things, is to ask yourself this question, what do I think about the Word of God? Because it's, it's crucially important. And I don't mean necessarily what we you know, believe about this teaching in the Bible or that teaching in the Bible. We're going to get to that. But I just mean in, in the, the grand scheme of things, how do you approach the Bible? What do you see the Bible as? What sort of place or uh, priority, what sort of value do you place upon the Bible? And so um, I think it's really important that we all examine our own mindset and our own consideration of the Word of God and then try to compare that to and do our best to line that up with maybe what Jesus thought about the Word. Um, and so Jesus is going to be commenting, if you will, about the nature of, of the Word of God. We're going to read... Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Before we uh, take time to read this passage together, let's ask the Lord to open our our eyes. Our Father in heaven, um, as we now come to uh, the table that you have prepared for us in your word, Lord, we we pray that as we take our seats and begin to to try to eat, Lord, that you would fill us to to the top. God, that you would give us ears to hear, that, that you would open our eyes that we might see, that you, would, that you would break open our hearts and implant in us what we otherwise would not be able to receive. Um, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, uh, work in us such that we read your Word and glean eternal truth from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 7. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come up from Jerusalem. 
Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban. That is, it is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, uh, believe it or not, Jesus is going to be teaching us some significant things about the Word, about the very Word that He is speaking, which is going to ultimately become the New Testament and His teachings reflected there. But in this instance, specifically, and very interestingly, because most of us would struggle much more with the Old than we do with the New Testament, Jesus is going to be teaching us something about the value of the Word of God from the perspective that the only Word they had at that time was the Old Testament. And he's going to be quoting from the Old Testament. And he's going to be encouraging their right understanding of the Old Testament. So what is it that we believe? And then what is it that is going on in this passage? Well, remember that Jesus has fed the 5,000. And then Jesus walked on water as he passed them by and gave them a glimpse of his glory, revealing to them who he was. And then if you remember, though, we did not talk at length about it. At the end of chapter 6, Jesus is healing in all of the surrounding area. If you look back at 656... It says, wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So there is somewhat of a revival taking place in this land. And so uh, as we have seen, Jesus' popularity has been growing. The masses have been coming to see him. They have been coming to be healed by him. Uh, People have been coming to object to his ministry and teaching, to try to catch him at fault, and to enter into debate and to discourse with him. Some have been coming genuinely to follow him and to set aside themselves and believe in him. There have been many reasons for their coming, but at the end of the day, Jesus' popularity has become widely known. And I think it is this bit of revival, if you will, and this popularity of Jesus that is, uh, that is growing that leads to the situation that we have then in chapter 7. Notice it says, then, so in light of all that is All that's been going on and all that's been being heard about him and his ministry, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, there's great debate, I will tell you, uh, in verse 1 here about 
who came and where they came from. We're not going to enter into that debate this morning because I don't care. It, it doesn't matter one little bit about what the text means or why it's given to us, whether the Pharisees really came from the north and only the scribes came up from the south, from Jerusalem, or whether they all came up together, why these two groups were together because they were often at odds with one another. Um, we know why they were together because when you have a common enemy, you become brothers. Uh, okay, and so however they got there, what we know is the text tells us that these groups of religious leaders, the Pharisees and some of the scribes, they came together to him. That is sufficient for me. They came together to him, and they were going to uh, have severe problem. They were, they were going to try to point out some severe discrepancies about Jesus and his ministry. Because what they're wanting to do is to show that he is unfit to be making the claims that he's making. Okay, so you can do all of these miraculous things that we've seen, and we may have heard that you walked on water if that really did happen, and we heard that you fed lots of people, but we're not really sure maybe what you did about that. Maybe there's been some healings, and maybe you have some sort of power, and you're a pretty good teaching, and people are pretty amazed by this. But at the end of the day, you simply cannot be the Messiah that you claim to be, and you simply cannot be able to bring about salvation and restoration as the king of the kingdom as you claim to be because you're unfit, because you're just a man, because you're the carpenter's son, because you're from a little town. You're, 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 just, you're just this guy that's making these outlandish claims that really you have no merit to make. You are unfit to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so you're going to see uh, as they begin to take exception with some of the things that Jesus and his disciples are doing, uh, he, he's going to end up pointing to a couple of things. But the first problem that they have, look, uh, is the problem of these washings. It says, Now when they saw some of his disciples he bred with defiled hands, that is unwashed hands, they found fault. Now that is they found fault with Jesus, uh, not with his followers. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. And then he goes on to tell us that in fact they don't even come home from the market and do anything or eat anything. They may not have touched anything defiled, but if they've been out in a public setting, there's all the chance in the world that they might have touched something that at some point a Along the way in the life of the something had been defiled in some way and so they have to go and they have to do these special washings and they would hold their hands with their fingers into the air and the water would have to drip off in a certain fashion and then they would have to turn their hands to set, you know, step two into a different direction and the water would have to drip off in another certain, certain way and they would have to go through these steps before they would ever take and eat and because, because it might be unclean and it, and it, and it might make them dirty it, it might make them unacceptable. Remember that. Because ultimately all of the, the, prob, all of the problems that Jesus has with their tradition, Jesus is not anti-tradition, but it is because they misunderstand what the use of all, the, all of these things are. They're doing these things to be acceptable to be acceptable to Christ, to be acceptable to the Lord. And so they're going through these ritualistic things to make themselves clean. 
both in a temporal and a physical sense and in an eternal sense, that, that if, we don't, if we don't do all of these certain things, then Jesus is never going to love us, and Jesus is never going to accept us. But Jesus is going to take some exception with this. We're going to, we're going to get into that in a moment. But, 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 but so they have these traditions, and it's very interesting if you look to the Old Testament and begin to examine uh, the commandments actually from the Word of God, which is where Jesus is going to turn, the commandments that have been given about washing and who is to wash and why they are to wash. The only people that are commanded to wash, and it's only in instances, for uh, ceremonial cleansing. It's not for personal hygiene, but ceremonial cleansing and acts of worship were the priests and those that were leading in worship. And so, but it had gotten to where, just as we saw with Jesus on the Sabbath, where they had manufactured and sort of interpreted and reinterpreted and reinterpreted again the, the laws and commandments about the Sabbath so that they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of all of these things that you must do and that you cannot do on the Sabbath lest you defile the day. They, they, totally, didn't, they totally didn't understand it. They had misused and abused these commandments that, that had come about ceremonial washing for the priests uh, for, for worship. And it was a beautiful picture. right? It was designed to point to their unworthiness and their inability that they needed to be cleansed by something outside of themselves, that they, that they could not do it themselves, which is what they end up using the law to try to do. So, so it's very ironic, but, but they were never really commanded to do this, but it had gotten to the point that all the people had to do all of these things that they had never really been commanded to do, but had been handed down as tradition, as commandments of men, as Jesus is going to point out. So the first thing that I want us to see then, if you're going to be jotting notes or taking an outline, the first thing that I want you to see that Jesus teaches about the Bible or about the Word of God is that it is of extreme necessity. The first point is the necessity of the Bible or the necessity of the Word of God. There was this issue about washing that they thought came from the Word of God that did not, that they had taken the commandments of men and turned into something else. But then there was also this issue of gifts. Look at what he, he gets down. There's this other issue, the second when it comes about at the bottom part of the verse. Really the meat of this passage and all of the teaching that we're going to see from it comes in verses 5, 6, and 7. All that's prior to that and then sort of most that comes after that up to 13, that's examples of what he's what he's getting on to them for, what he's showing them how they don't understand and how they're abusing the word. But so the second issue that he points to is the commandments of the word of God to honor your father and your mother. Right? It was a very important thing in their day. It had, it had been since the beginning of time, and it was a Christian and a biblical command that Christians were to honor their parents. They were to honor their, their, their commandments, both in obedience, they were to honor them in loving them, and they were to honor them in supporting them. It was a responsibility of all in that day, as many, many of you can can share today part of the responsibility that we bear in our culture and in our day of supporting your parents financially when they can no longer support themselves and, 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 and providing for their needs, whether they be physical or financial, whatever the case may be. And it was a big deal for Christians from, from the beginning. And God had commanded that men and women honor their father and their mother. But they had come up with this uh, loophole to the law where if you would simply... Uh, call something or dedicate something as korban, which means it says there, this is a gift to God. What they would do is, is they would take their money or their fields or their grain uh, or their livestock or their uh, facilities and homes and sheds or whatever they had in that day, and they would make them a gift to God. They are set aside as committed and dedicated to God. You know what that meant? They weren't for anybody else. So that if you would simply make your money a korban or a gift to God and set it apart to that end, then guess what? 
your parents couldn't touch it. And you were, you were going to stoop so low as to take what you had dedicated to the Lord and give it to your parents. You see what they were doing? They, 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 were, they were taking something that could be of great value and worth, committing and dedicating and giving to the Lord, and they were abusing it in such a way so as to prevent them from honoring the commandments that God had really given them. So that there is this issue. What, what is the problem? He's picking up different things, but what we see multiple times in this text, he says, and many such things you do. He closes the very end. Look at verse 13. And many such things you do. Jesus is saying, I could go on and on all day about all of the ways that you do whatever it is that you're doing. And these things are very different issues. So what was the issue? What was the problem? What was it that they were doing? Well, as I've alluded to, the issue is that they misunderstood and they misinterpreted the Bible. They did all of the things that they did under the the cloak, if you will, under the guise of doing them because God had commanded them to do so. That they were required to do these things because God Almighty and His Word had given them to be done. And in fact, they were only doing what men had commanded them to do. The product, okay, the, the problem results in a product, and we see it then actually in his, in verse 6, when he answered and says to them, he calls them hypocrites. Look at what he says. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me. So the problem is that they misinterpret and that they misunderstand the Word of God, specifically the Old Testament laws, that the ceremonial aspects that they had abused and taken, not understood the value, what they were given for. And the product of their abuse of these things is that it leads to an inability to worship. Now that's very interesting, and that's really where the teaching for this passage jumps off. There are these problems, many such things they do, right? They, they, they set things aside as dedicated to God so that they can get out of giving it to their parents. They, they, they do all of these washings, all these ritualistic things that men had commanded them to do. The problem was that they misunderstood the Bible, and the result of that problem or the product of that problem is that it led to an inability to worship. For in vain they worship me. Vain means of no point. Having not reached or accomplished its desired end. So they're attempting to worship Him, and this doesn't mean in corporate worship. This is, this is the general worship of one's life, that they live a life of worship to the Lord. But, but, but it is in vain that they worship me, that they seek to honor me with their life, that they seek to honor me with these deeds, because they misinterpret what I've told them, and they misunderstand the role of these things, and it leads to a totally vain worship. A life of worship that is of no value. Why does it lead to an inability to worship? Well, when we worship, both corporately, as we are doing this morning, and when we do it as, generally speaking, with a life that uh, seeks to worship the Lord, it is an attempt. It is when we live, when we speak, when we pray, when we sing, when we give time in such a fashion so as to honor Christ, where we give Him praise for everything that He has done. When we recount, as we read from the psalm this morning, all of the great and mighty works that He has done and the benefits that have flowed from those things to us. The interesting thing, however is that every single thing that Jesus has done has been inextricably connected to the Word of God. If you think about the life of Jesus, even as we've seen it recounted here, what was He constantly doing? When He was tempted in the wilderness, He said what? It is written. 
it is written. When he prayed, he talked about how it is written. When he rebuked, as we see in this text here, he commanded and said to them, Isaiah prophesied well of you. He refers to what has been written. Jesus did not do anything, did not think anything, did not have any compulsion. As he said, I have only come to do the will of the one that sent me, and that will has been given through the word of God. Jesus the King is inextricably connected to his word. Tim Keller put it like this, You cannot follow Jesus and reject the very basis of his whole life because his whole life was based upon the Word of God. At the very best, that just isn't thinking, but at the worst, it's hypocritical. So what's going on here is they were rejecting parts and aspects of the Word of God as many of us do, and as is very popular in our own culture, and it led to an inability to rightly worship and honor Christ because to reject part of the Word is to reject the King of the Word for the two stand and fall together. Listen, this is, as I said, very popular in our culture. Many people, many people in our day have some desire for Jesus. Do they not? Uh, many, many people, depending on the, the circumstance of their life or of the time in their life, they have some certain need for Christ and for Christians and for the church and for His blessing. Right? Some, some people have an interest to some degree in the Word of God. What I'm saying is that some people like some of it and love the parts that they love and read the parts that make them happy and they like the parts about Jesus that they understand and that they get and that seem to give them warm, fuzzy feelings, but they don't like all of Him. And they like the parts of the Word of God that seem to do something for them or that seem to resonate in their heart that seem to fix some problem that they have, but they don't like all of it. And what he's, what he's saying is, is that you can't have all, you, you can't have any if you don't have all. That, that it's one or the other. That to reject the claims of Christ in the Word and to reject the commandments of God in the Word or to reject Christ Himself or to reject the very God that gave it. Jesus did everything. His whole life was based upon the Word of God. All of the Word revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, deeply indwelling and directing our lives, is absolutely necessary then if we are going to truly worship It's why we spend so much time in the Word and worship. It's why we begin our services with the Word of God. It's why we sing songs. I was was informed this morning that uh, one of the songs that we sang is not Baptist. Many of you may not have known it. I apologize. It's a great song. If you don't know it, you should. I couldn't believe that my brother didn't know the song, right? We sing, we sing songs, as I showed you last week, that are, that are driven by the Word of God. We sing the Word of God. We pray the Word of God. We read the Word of God. We want to be grown by the Word of God. We want to have right understanding of the Word of God. We plead with the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand the Word of God. Why? Because if we're ever going to truly worship the King of the Word, it is going to be through a right understanding of the Word. You can't have one without the other. And these, regardless of what the examples He gives are, many such things they did and many such things we do. The problem is that they took parts of the Word of God and they ultimately, as we're going to see in just a moment, they used them for their own benefit. They did not understand them. They did not seek to understand them. And they abused them in such a way that in vain did they worship Him. Why? Because they claimed all of these things with their mouth and honored Him with their lips, as it says, but their hearts were far from Him. They your heart is far from the Word, 
then it is necessarily far from Jesus. So the necessity of the Word of God then is it's necessary for true worship. But if then we're going to be interested in a deep understanding, a right understanding, a longing and love for the Word of God and making it central to our life and basing our life and our worship and our church upon the Word of God as Christ did, if that's the goal, why why do it? What does that look like and what, what benefit does it, does it have? What is the purpose of that? So first, the necessity of the Word of God, but second then, the direction of the Word of God. As I said a moment ago, what I'm going to show you first the direction that they were going to try to show you something about the direction that I think is intended by all the commandments of the Word of God. So, so I said a moment ago that they were using the Word of God to profit themselves and for their own gain or benefit. Um, they used the Word in the washing of hands. They claimed to be honoring and keeping the commandments of the Word so that they could cleanse themselves, so that they could separate themselves. Because what in effect this had in, to the place that it had gotten uh, is that they separated themselves from all the other cultures from all the Gentiles, from all the pagans. They didn't want to have anything to do with them because all of those people were unclean. None of them had a place in their worship. None of them had a part of their life. None of them were to have anything to do with their religion. So they washed and they washed and they did all of these things so that they could be clean, so that they could separate themselves from the people that they did not like. They also, as we saw, used the Word of God to bolster their own pocketbooks. Did they not? They committed things to God whatever that means, dedicated things to the Lord, so that they did not have to honor their father and their mother with giving and supporting them financially. So they did not have to keep the commandments that God had given them. They were using the Word of God, turning it around, abusing it in such a way, reinterpreting it to serve their own purposes. It is not merely that they misunderstood it, but they misused it. In effect, they were prostituting the Word of God. If I can use that language rightly, they were prostituting the Word of God. They were manipulating it so that it would be sent out and bring back to them something that would benefit them. Do you see how wrong that use and understanding of the Word of God is? That is not the type of understanding that we long for. That is not the purpose for which, the direction for which the Bible, the Word of God has been given. But like the Pharisees, don't we do this all too often as well? I mean, just off the top of my head, I was thinking this morning, uh, you know, we look at passages where Jesus says to forgive as we've been forgiven. And we think, well... You know, okay, that's the commandment that we've been given, and uh, Jesus only forgives me, you know, if, if I ask for forgiveness, and we begin to kind of distort and misunderstand things, and so we end up ultimately using those commandments, the Word, to harbor hatred and bitterness in our heart toward other people, and say that I don't have to forgive them. They haven't asked for it. We are very good. We are, we are very good at using the Word of God to justify our sin. To, to turn it around and to abuse it, to prostitute it just as they were, to serve our own purposes, to justify our own actions. Listen, one of the most, one of the most popular arguments in our culture today is that over homosexuality. Do, do, you know what, do you know what they say? That the Bible says it's okay. And, and they turn to the Word of God and they distort and turn it around and they abuse it in such a way so as that it will serve their own purposes. 
So, so we're not much different than they are. It is not merely that they misunderstood it, but that they misused it. They prostituted it, manipulating it, sending it out so that it would be brought back to them to serve their purposes. However, the direction of the Bible for the purpose that it was given is very different. The purpose of the Bible is not to serve our hearts, but to deal with our hearts. The purpose of the Bible ultimately is not to deal with our obedience. It is to deal with our hearts. It's not so that we will, as they had done, do all of these things, be all of these things, check off all of these boxes, that we will live this certain way and that we will then be acceptable, which is what they were advocating. It's not so that we can abuse it and turn it around because ultimately if the purpose of the Word of God is simply to give us a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts, we're going to misuse it. We're going to make those rules serve our own purposes. But if the purpose of the Word of God is to deal with our hearts because the problem is a heart issue, then it's going to take care of the obedience. I've said all the time, Jesus did not die on a cross so that you would be more well-behaved. Behavior is, the, behavior is the product of something greater. It, it is the manifestation of the bigger problem which rests in your hearts. What does he say? The people honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. So that even Jesus in this very passage, he points to the reality that the issue in worship and their misuse of the word of God is not really that they don't do the right things. It is that they have a heart problem. The Bible is trying to help us to see that no matter what we do, no matter what box we check, no matter what tradition we keep, it wants us to see that we'll never be good enough, that we'll never be clean enough, and that we can always misuse it to serve our own purposes. How does it do this? How does the Bible make this sort of abundantly clear to our hearts? Well, it shows us a standard to which we cannot attain. You know, it's very interesting to me. We think about reading the Bible and how encouraging it is to us. I find that interesting as a pastor. I study the Bible all the time. I read the Bible all the time. I get paid. I do it for a living. Most of you do not. You should. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) But listen, I think if we read the Bible honestly, genuinely, we would be forced to confess that it is not encouraging. It is deeply terrifying. I mean, one pastor used the illustration of the the story of Joseph. I mean, mean, we, we read about the story of Joseph and how he is sold off into slavery and he goes through these terrible experiences and all of the things that could possibly go wrong in his life go wrong. And yet he looks to his brothers with love and he forgives them and he helps them and he gives to them and he supports them and he, he forgives them. And we think, God, that's such an encouraging story. That's so great. That is not what I see. When I read about Joseph, I think who in the world can do that? Who can live like that? Who can possibly be sold into slavery by their brothers, left for dead, and love them anyway? I don't know that I can. And I think it's not encouraging if we honestly read the Bible, the Word of God, genuinely, and are honest with it and with ourselves, we'd be forced to confess that it is not encouraging as much as it is terrifying. It moves us to realize that there is, there is a standard that we will never reach. It shows us our heart. It gives us these commandments and we, 
and we look at them and say, I can never live like that. It tells us not to think evil thoughts, and we think, I think them all the time. It tells us to be faithful to our spouse, and we think, man, how I can't do that. It, it, it commands that we die to ourselves and, and live holy for Jesus. I can't do that. It shows us a picture of something that is beautiful, but that is impossible. And so it points us to realize first that we can never get there, but but that it is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Because see, the Bible has a main character. And the point of the Bible is not to give us the rules and the do's and don'ts of how to live good. It is to show us the rules. It is to show us the standard. It is to reveal to us what we can never be. And then show us and reveal to us the main character who has become that for us. The Bible is shockingly effective at teaching us about Jesus. Because it forces us to realize, if not for Jesus, where would we be? So the necessity of the Bible for true worship, the direction of the Bible, it is not to serve our own purposes. It is not to give us a list of do's and don'ts. It is not a lazy man's religion. Listen, I I wish sometimes that, you know, I could just give you all of the things that you need to do today and tomorrow to be good. That would be super easy for me and super easy for you. All I can tell you is that you need a heart that loves Christ. And you need to be wholly sold out to him, and that's much more difficult. But thirdly, then, the result of the Bible, and I've got to close with this. The result of honoring the Bible this way and seeking to understand its purpose and its direction is that we get a deep knowledge of and an ultimately uh, intimate relationship with the main character of the Bible. See, the reason the Bible and worship and the character of the Bible are so connected is because in learning and understanding and rightly using and applying the Word of God, we become connected intimately to the character, the main character in the story of the Word of God. The result of the Bible is that we get to know Him. The great irony is that they were using the Bible to serve their own benefit in a wrong way, but that the Bible is actually for their benefit. Not the way that they were using it, but to teach them about Christ who was going to do for them what they could not do for themselves. A final illustration. John Piper often speaks of using the Bible like this. What the Word of God is to do for us, it is to be a mirror. So many people, though, want to look at the Bible as a mirror that reflects themselves. We, we want to look in the Bible and we want to see how good we are and how, 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 how tidy we are and how clean we are and how pure we are. But what he says is that it's a mirror that's actually angled upward. So that it's not that we see ourselves, it's that we see Jesus. The Bible is a living and breathing thing that is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces deep into the souls of men. It divides their joint and their marrow. We cannot live by bread alone, but only by the word of God. So let us heed the words of James one twenty one and receive the implanted word, which alone is able to save our souls. And then let our lives be characterized by a burning desire for biblical obedience, not so that Jesus will love us and accept us, but because he already has. Lest we worship in vain, let us know and love and honor, not the traditions that we hold so dear, but the commandments of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Word and its difficulty. Lord, when we look at it and when we see things that we do not like, 
God, help us to help us to understand that we cannot love you and we cannot follow you unless we also love your word. Lord, keep us from the sin of abusing it and and reinterpreting it in such a way that it would serve our purposes, that that it would make us feel good about who we are, that that it would, in our minds, help us to be acceptable to you. Lord, help us to see that the purpose of the Bible is to show us that we're not, but that you came to make us holy and to stand in our place and to pay our penalty and to save us. Father, for every person in this room today, I pray that you would place in our hearts a deep longing for your word. And then as we study it, that you would help us to know it as you've intended it and as you've given it. Lord, open our eyes and open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.